Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the Research Evangelist, and welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, coming to you today from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And the Greek meaning of evangelist, by the way, is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research by interviewing people in life sciences who are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And of course, I always laugh because they're they are definitely famous in the sense that they're well-respected and known in their field uh, amongst their peers and the communities that they serve. But uh, I always say that if I asked my next door neighbor if they know the name, they, he probably would not know it. So, but that's why I love to share their stories um, and, and learn about their journey in science and what they're doing in cancer research. And I'm super excited today uh, to have on the show uh, Dr. Leora Horn. Uh, Dr. Horn is the Global Clinical Head for Lung Cancer and Lung Cancer Strategy at AstraZeneca, and she leads uh, the company's global research and development in lung cancer, and uh, in her role, she partners with lung cancer teams across AstraZeneca Oncology to rapidly progress their research and deliver on their commitment to cure more patients with the disease. Of course, I love that. Uh, before, before coming to AstraZeneca, Dr. Horn was the uh, Ingram Associate Professor of Cancer Research and Director of the Clinical Research Section of the Thoracic Oncology Program at Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center, amongst other things. And I'm super excited to have you and uh, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, I'd like to start, um, like I always like to start with, you know, the journey in science and I'll tell our listeners, you know, that you, you are originally from South Africa and you came to Canada when you're 13 years old. And I'd, I'd love to, to hear you tell us about, you know, what was that like emotionally and some of the challenges that you faced and um, kind of what that experience was like. You know, it, it's, it's interesting thinking back on it now, especially having a child around that age. Um, you know, I had never been outside of South Africa. Um, so we were not only embarking on a journey to a different country, um, but it was not someone who's ever experienced a different country, which is so different from how children are brought up today. Um, and so we left just because of increasing violence. It was still in the time of apartheid um, and uh, landed in Toronto, which back then South Africans were calling to run to because um, so many people were uh, moving there. Um, but, you know, I'm really grateful because I don't think I would have had the opportunities, especially things like going to medical school um, if we had stayed in South Africa. Um, it was definitely tough at first, you know, uh, going from a life where a lot of things were done for you. You were one of sort of the privileged of society to watching your parents who had degrees. My dad's an accountant, my mom's a pharmacist. Suddenly their degrees were not recognized. Um, they both had to go back and requalify. So we learned a lot about hard work and grit. Um, but really I'm so grateful to my parents for moving with us rather than some of my friends who have had to see leave their parents behind and the, the opportunities that they really gave us by moving to North America. Hmm. Well, how did they choose, um, uh, it was a Toronto, right? How did they choose uh, that as a destination? Um, you know, it's funny. The first time I went to Australia, I actually called my father and told him he got on the wrong boat and that it was much nicer in Australia than it was in Canada. Um, but uh, really, it was um, my dad had two brothers. Um, one was in Michigan and one is in New York. And you, it was a lot tougher to get into the U.S. at that time. And Canada had a point system. 
and there was a shortage of accountants. Um, and so based on points and qualifications, um, it was a little bit easier to get into um, Toronto at the time or into Canada at the time. Yeah, that's that's cool. Um, now, so did you like science when you were when you were a kid? I know you you said your mom was a pharmacist and, you know, did that have influence on you? And I asked the question because my, my wife, um, my wife's father um, it was a pharmacist. Um, in Western New York, and I know she used to work in, uh, in his store when she was a kid, and she feels like that really kind of had an impact on her becoming a nurse. So I'm wondering if that had an impact on you, or you know, how did you feel about science when you were younger? So I always liked science, um, and uh, you know, it's funny you say that because uh, similar to your wife, I actually started working at a store, um, like it was called Shoppers Drug Mart, which is a huge retail chain like Walgreens in Canada. And I started off as a cashier, and then actually during college and uh, through medical school, I actually worked as a pharmacy technician. Um, I during that time, I had actually thought about going into pharmacy. Um, and I think one of my mom's greatest disappointments initially was when I was like, I am never going to be a pharmacist. Um, I think at the time, pharmacists were underutilized. Um, you know, it's such a different career now with PharmDs and all the opportunities that you get. Um, so I had decided and instead of being the pharmacist, I wanted to be the doctor who was writing the prescriptions. Um, so uh, I also volunteered uh, at, at a hospital um, in one of the geriatric units when I was in high school. So sort of got that feel of what it was like to have that uh, patient relationship, um, obviously as a volunteer, not as a physician, but it really sort of streamed my way to wanting to go towards medicine. You know, a, a lot of people I talk to on my show, you know, they have that sort of moment or that person or that experience, whether it's in middle school or high school, you know, that kind of changes or, or maybe reinforces, you know, um, a direction that, you know, that you would go. I know uh, John Whitstein talked about a, a science teacher that he had that just kind of changed his life, you know? So um, it's interesting just to, to hear about. I think that experience working as that volunteer may have have moved you and, and, and thinking about, you know, going after college, maybe going to medical school and becoming a doctor. Yeah, I think it definitely had an impact. And, you know, I, I think the bigger impact came in because no one realizes, and, I, and I, I know that I didn't even at the time, you know, you think you're going to go to medical school and it's all sorted out. And then you get to medical school and you're like, oh my gosh, I need a specialty. And then you get your specialty and you're like, oh no, I need a subspecialty after internal medicine. And it's, oh wow, you need a job. Um, and I think it's those small moments along the way that propel you towards each thing that you do in your career. And there definitely be lecturers or patient interactions that have steered me down the path to where, to where I ended up in oncology. Yeah. I, I'm curious to know, like how, so how did it, how did you end up um, uh, choosing oncology? Uh, so when I was um, in medical school, there was actually this great lecture that we got from a hematologist at University of Toronto uh, by the name of Ian Quirt. And he really got me thinking about um, internal medicine and hematology. And I asked, actually asked to sh um, shadow him. And as it turned out, um, Dr. Quirt was a medical oncologist um, giving those lectures. And he had a wonderful uh, clinic uh, with uh, melanoma patients and sarcoma patients. And so I really admired the doctor-patient relationship that he had, um, the connection with the patients and sort of the way he 
was trying to help and communicate. And, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, 20 years ago where there was not as many options for cancer patients. Um, so it was a very, very different environment. Um, and so it was uh, definitely Dr. Court who sort of propelled me towards um, oncology. Um, I also had previously done a master's degree at Princess Margaret Hospital at University of Toronto, and so had seen a little bit of the research side. And so I think between the two of them, it's also what made me to stick with academic oncology and somehow put research into my career. Yeah. And I, I read somewhere that uh, you, when you were training at the University of Toronto, you had some women mentors that that had an impact on you. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there are two amazing internists, um, Sharon Strauss and Katina Tsnetis. Um, I, you always had to have sort of a, a, a area. Um, and so during my internal medicine residency, I was really interested in medical education. Um, and actually when I started um, my uh, subspecialty fellowship in thoracic oncology, I also did a, a master's in health professional education. I started one at the same time at uh, University of Illinois in Chicago. Um, and, and they really showed me how you can have both that research career and you can have that uh, academic uh, patient-centered career, but you can do the research in the area that you wanted to do. Um, and actually, when I started um, as faculty at Vanderbilt, my initial plan had been to have a career that was focused on medical education, but treating thoracic cancer patients. It turned out a little bit different to what my focus became, um, but they were really inspiring and showing you what what you could do when when you were passionate about what you were doing. Yeah, that's it's always great when you can do something that you're that you're super passionate about. And I always tell people that from a patient's perspective, I'm always so impressed with the people that I've met in research that it's reason that's really one of the reasons that I have this this program is because it's my way of thanking you for for your commitment to, you know, to the field. And so you ended up um, you know, at Vanderbilt. And so how how did you how did you go? Okay, so it's from South Africa to Toronto, and now and now you ended up um, down at Vanderbilt. So, can you tell us about you know how that happened? Yeah, so I'm collecting citizenships as I go along, um, <laughs> and um, you know, at, at the time, and and it still is like this today. Um, it, it's uh, the Canadian system is a little bit different um, from the U.S., and if you wanted to have an academic position, you had to go somewhere else and get additional training and come back. Um, and at the time I had, uh, I should say we, cause my husband and I, we had one, one child, um, Ben, who is, who was nine, nine months old at the time. And so I didn't want to go too far cause my husband wasn't going to come with us. Um, and so um, I had done a two month rotation during my training um, in oncology down at Vanderbilt um, with uh, Alan Sandler. And I, uh, he is a wonderful um, thoracic oncologist and Dave Johnson was here at the time as well. I didn't know Dave as well then. Uh, Dave, was, Dave was the chair of the department and um, I had emailed them and said, you know, hey, how about I come back for a full year um, with the full intention of going back to um, Canada when I was done. And um, they, they said, sure, come along. And I got a grant from the Canadian Association of Medical Oncology um, to come down to Nashville for a year. Um, and so my son and I were here and my husband used to fly back and forth every weekend. Uh, we used to call him the fun guy from the weekends. Um, and, you know, I was so lucky to have Dave and uh, Alan as mentors because they really allowed me to do 
clinic and to do research papers and to get involved with clinical trials and gain that experience. But we're super flexible about me being a a quote unquote single parent. Um, And so uh, I spent a year and a half with them. And at the end, I went back to Toronto and the only job available was a GI position. Um, And I interviewed there and I'm a terrible interviewer, especially when it's a panel interview. So I sort of left the interview and I knew I blew it, but I didn't really want to do GI and I was okay with that. Um, And there was not a lung position. And, you know, Dave said to me, hey, if you want to stay here, we'll take you. Um, And, you know, it was a great opportunity. It was a lot of discussion with my husband. All of our family were in Toronto. Um, I was taking my mother-in-law's favorite grandchild um, away or her only grandchild at the time. Yeah, so yeah. He, it was definitely the favorite um, and staying down here. But it it was just such a great opportunity for me that my husband and I decided it was worth worth the worth the move down. And I guess um, the rest was history. Boy, that's that, that family part of it is tough, isn't it? You know, I'm originally from Minnesota and, you know, I went to school in, in, uh, in Philadelphia and I decided to stay out here and, and I wasn't married at the time or anything, but it was, it was so rough on my parents. They couldn't, you know, they just couldn't understand. Like, why, why do you not like Minnesota? Why do you, why do you, why do you? and I said, no, it's not that I don't like Minnesota. I just have opportunities, you know, in, here in Pennsylvania that I wanted to pursue, but that, you know, not only are you, you're, you're going far away, but you're going to a different country too. So but you, but you, you, you decided that you didn't want GI and you, you wanted lung. So what was, how did you come to the, that lung cancer was the, the specialty that you wanted to, to be involved with? Well, I, I had been doing lung cancer um, at Vanderbilt and, you know, I just, I love the lung cancer patient population. Um, it's just really a, a, an amazing patient population. I think that there is definitely not enough funding and there's not enough advocacy there. Um, there is still that stigma um, that's associated with lung cancer. And I just, you know, I, it, it's interesting how each disease, the patient population sort of has these characteristics and it, it's really is a special patient population. And so um, I, I was doing lung cancer here and, and doing, going back and doing GI would have been to be around family. Um, you know, I think my job teaches me how important family is. At, at 47, I still speak to my mother every day. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sad that my kids don't have that opportunity to see their grandparents every day. I think COVID has really highlighted that and that the board is being closed now for over a year. And so they can't come here and we can't go there. Um, but I also feel lucky that my, my family, my parents, my in-laws, they've been able to travel. And so that the time that we have together, you know, ha- has been a special time. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, a, it's, a, it's a tough decision when you, when you leave your family, there's, there's a lot of guilt in leaving your parents behind, right? Yes, for sure. <laughs> definitely a lot of guilt, but I, I really like, uh, you know, what you said about the, the lung cancer, uh, community, the community of, you know, and I call it, you know, patients and caregivers. And, and of course you're part of the community too. You know, we, 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 we like to think of the clinicians and researchers and cancer centers and pharma companies, you know, I talk about that all the time because I think we're all in this together. And I love it. I love it when, when the researchers lean into the community and really appreciate, you know, the communities. What, you, you talked a little bit about what makes it, what, what do you think makes the lung cancer community special in the way that you described it? 
You know, I, I think when we started, even the researchers, you know, there's some other specialties where there's a lot of cutthroat competition and not as much camaraderie. I think for lung cancer, you know, when, when I started back in 2009, there wasn't as many options for patients. And so I think it's been so gratifying to go through the era of targeted therapy and immunotherapy mm -hmm. and angiogenic inhibitors. And we're still now going into the next realm of antibody drug conjugates and more targets and sort of see that we've got more options for our patients, that people are living longer and better. And I think, I think the research community really set that message in some ways of we work together and seeing people work together and, and collaborate. Um, you know, some of my good friends are people that I've met through work and who I've worked with both within the industry um, as well as other um, centers. And the patients are, I, I can't explain why, but they're special. Mm -hmm. um, you, you would know as a, as a survivor <laughs> yourself. It's just, it's an amazing group of patients as well who we don't take, who don't take things for granted. Um, you know, we, who recognize that we're not as, well-funded is breast cancer, but mortality rates are higher. But I think that, that the banding together is part of the reason that we've also seen the improvements in survival with time um, as people are accelerating science and research and really trying to get those best drugs to their patients. Yeah, it has. I'm sure it's been a, it's been an exciting time from my perspective as a research evangelist to see the, the breakthroughs that have happened in lung cancer over the past five years, 10 years, but especially even the five seems like every month there's some, there's like a new change happening, which is just fantastic. And so I do see that, that sense of, of hope um, and optimism from a lot of the members of the community. Of course, there's, there's still a lot of them that are, you know, in stage four metastatic disease that are fighting for their lives. Right. And I was, a, I was an early stage um, cancer patient. So, you know, I came out of that with, this was 20 years ago. And so I, I live a life of gratitude because of it. And I have a, a, you know, a kind of a unique perspective on that and trying to be sensitive. But I think what you're saying is, is so true because we do, we talk a lot about the, the stigma and it's not, it's not in a, a woe is me kind of a way. We, and it's not that we're all just really super mad about it, but we, we do get frustrated by it. Um, I was a non-smoker. Uh, so to me, it's like, Every time somebody asked me if I smoked, it would just be like, why, why are you asking me that? You know? yeah. But, 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 but it's also our community of people who did smoke and people who smoke don't deserve to have lung cancer either. And so, exactly. you know, we're trying to, I, I feel the sense of unity um, oftentimes, you know, and I've gotten involved with a project called the white ribbon project. What I'm going to ask you about, um, about later, I'm not sure if you've heard about that, but um, it's, it really is, a, it, it is a unique um community of, of people and we're trying to you know continue to to bring people together that are that can help you know to to spread the word that anybody can get lung cancer in fact one of the, i had uh cheryl agarwal you know on my show and she was talking about how sometimes she even feels the, the stigma as a clinician which i thought was interesting i never heard that i had really never heard that before but i thought isn't that interesting you know that she but i just love the fact that she's so aware and you're so aware of that and how, you know, what we go through and um, in, in being a, a you know, cancer patient. So, so now, you know, you've moved, so you spent, you know, a good amount of time at Vanderbilt doing, doing research and you've now uh, made the move to industry uh, by joining AstraZeneca. And I'd, I'd love to have you tell us like, what was that motivation and, and was it a hard decision and kind of, 
you know, what, you know, what was, what is, what is it that moved you to, to make this, um, this transition in your career? You know, I, I think it's always a hard decision to move um, careers. And I, I think it's even harder when you have to move your, your family. Um, and I think that there is still some gender bias and that it's harder when the wife keeps making the family move. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think the, I wasn't looking to move. Um, you know, it, it's strange to switch jobs in the middle of a global pandemic. And in some ways, I felt a little bit guilty leaving clinical medicine um, and stepping away from the hospital when everything was so uncertain. And, you know, the some of the spikes happened after I left because um, I left last uh, I left last September, but I I was a little bit bored at work. Um, I was enjoying what I was doing, loved clinic, um, but when I say I was a little bit bored, you know, there's there's sort of reaches a point in your career where you're kind of like, well, hey, I've I've hit these milestones, I've done this on trials, I've published this, I've been toward this, I've established this, and you know, what am I what am I going to do for the next twenty years? And so the, there were not as many opportunities, I think, for me to take a step up at the center that I was at. Um, and I got this random email um, from AstraZeneca and actually someone that I had worked with at University of Toronto, um, uh, uh, Sunil Verma, was doing a similar role in breast cancer. And so I responded to the email from AstraZeneca and I, I spoke with someone from there and, and then I spoke with Sunil. And uh, he definitely was part of talking me into the position, but it seemed like an opportunity to grow and do something different. Um, importantly, I didn't have to move, um, so I could be remote. And I think COVID made that a little bit easier in that it, it is an office that many people are normally in the office, um, but right now nobody's in the office. And so getting to know people over Zoom, making those connections over Zoom is sort of the new normal. And so um, I, you know, have agreed that I'll travel back and forth as needed. Um, so, it, you know, and then, and then there was always the family part. And, you know, I was like many people in clinical medicine, I was spending a lot of more time documenting. So, you know, a lot of time at night writing notes or on the weekend writing notes, because you're trying to be both that academic physician, but that good clinician. And mm -hmm. you can't fit that all into the workday. And the one thing that has been somewhat refreshing to me um, is I got a little bit of my family time back. You know, I, if I don't want to work on a Saturday, which I sort of don't now, I, I don't have to. <laughs> um, I have more time in the evenings if I close my computer for a few hours, you know, and pick it up later um, to sort of go to soccer games or spend time with my family, take a walk. Um, and so from that perspective, it, it's been amazing. And then it's just the science, right? You know, I don't have to hustle for the trials. We have the trials and the translational people. And it's amazing how many incredibly smart and talented people I am surrounded by every day who challenge me. Um, I'm learning so much, you know, you think, you know, about clinical trials and, and trial design, and you realize when you join industry, you know, nothing. And, you know, you learn about all these other aspects of trial design that you don't think about even when you're a lead investigator on a study. And so I'm, I'm learning a new skill set. Um, and, you know, I'm, when I'm thinking about a trial or a drug, I'm not thinking about those few hundred people that I might impact at Vanderbilt. I'm thinking globally, 
who's going to be using this drug and what does it mean if this drug gets approved and how do we get it approved and how do we get it into different countries? And then I still get to work with all my lung cancer friends. Um, you know, they're, they're on, they're on some of the studies um, that we're developing. They're on advisory boards that have been put in place. Um, you know, we still think about the patients. Um, we talk about the patients a lot, you know, I'll, goal um, within AstraZeneca, we have something called the Lung Ambition Alliance, who has a goal to double cure by for lung cancer patients. And I, I think it's it's amazing that it's beyond just getting the drugs to the patients, but what are we going to do for the patients and how are we going to help those patients? And also this huge push towards screening. And, you know, we were talking about stigma before. A lot of patients don't want to get screened because they don't want to get the diagnosis. They don't want to know. And so, you know, screening has always been a problem globally and particularly the U.S. where only 4% of eligible patients are screened. And so, you know, I love that there's a push where we're trying to get more patients screened because a, it's okay to get that diagnosis because there are options for you and there are treatments for you. And it's, if we can find it early, we can double that survival for lung cancer. And so, you know, I think that there's so many opportunities to push cancer care forward in what I'm doing and still learning and growing as an individual at the same time. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's, there's so much there. There isn't much to unpack there because uh, what I hear is, you know, the, the fact that you, are, are taking on this new challenge, but yet you're, you still have the ability to work with your, your lung cancer friends, as you call them, uh, on some of these trials and, and so forth. And yet, you know, you're surrounding yourself with all of, you know, these amazingly talented, smart people within AstraZeneca. And I always like to, you know, to shine the light on the fact that there's so many good people that I've met in my career and working with pharmaceutical clients that, you know, there's this talk about stigma. There's this the, 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 every time I hear big bad pharma or or you know pharma's greedy and whatever. It's like, well, you don't know the people that I've worked with in my career, you know, who are or people like you. And so I think it's good for it's it's a win for you and it's a win for AstraZeneca because um, you you bring so from from your experience you bring that I think that compassion empathy for the patient. Um, which, which I, which I agree is, is so, is so important. So, so do you miss the, the clinical part or, I mean, I'm sure that you do because it, you've probably had some great relationships with, with patients, but is that, oh, has that been yeah, I, it, I definitely miss the clinical part. Um, you know, I miss the people I work with in clinic as well, kind of the banter back and forth, you know, now my office mates are four, uh, have four legs and are quite furry. Um, and, you know, I, I still um, hear from patients. I get text messages. I'm, I am definitely one of those docs who my nurse practitioner used to joke that I should just write my phone number on the bathroom walls because um, I used to just give people my number. And, you know, if there's there's a problem and you can't get hold of someone, just call me. Um, I, I get texts when people's scans are good. I get texts when they're not so good. And, you know, just people saying, hi, how are you? Um, my my plan um, and, you know, one of the great things about industry is, is you can sometimes do a little bit of clinic still. And so my plan was always to uh, have a small clinic on a Friday afternoon. Um, and that still is my plan um, sometime towards the end of the summer, just to kind of keep my, the pulse on what is happening in clinic. Um, 
And so I'm, I am going to hopefully continue to do that. There are also opportunities to volunteer um, at Vanderbilt. They have this program called the Shade Tree Clinic, which is for uh, in an underserved area. It's run by medical students. It's a great community service that Vanderbilt offers. And so I might volunteer there, you know, once a month as well, um, just to get that fill of clinical medicine, but also be around uh, medical students and, and residents. So I, I, I'm still getting the idea of what my job is and getting fully immersed in what I'm doing. But my, my plan has been and, and still is to s- still have that, that part in clinical medicine. Yeah. You, you, uh, in your role there, you had mentioned, or I'd mentioned in the, in the introduction, from your bio that you partner with lung cancer teams from across AstraZeneca Oncology. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. Um, So, you know, uh, within, uh, we have a couple of drugs that are approved in lung cancer. Um, We have um, osimertinib or Tigriso, which is for patients who are, uh, have um, cancers that have EGFR mutations. And then we have Dervalumab that's approved in people after chemo and radiation. But there are a couple of other drugs that are in clinical trials. Um, there's um, a drug called um, DATO-DXD, doesn't have an official name yet, um, that is for patients um, that um, it's being looked at in patients who've progressed on chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And then there's another drug called um, uh, NHER2 or TDXD, um, and uh, that drug is for patients with, it's shown some promising results in patients with HER2 mutation, positive um, lung cancer. And so I work across the different teams when they're thinking about the clinical trials. Um, where does one fit into the other? Like which patient should, or population should we think about for, say, for osimertinib versus which patient population should we think about for DATO DXD? We also have um, some drugs in early development that we're excited about that are going to come along. And so, or combination studies or um, sort of early uh, phase one, two studies where they're not looking for approval, but looking for signals of activity. And so I get to meet with people and decide, like, does this look promising? Should we take it to a study that can get registration and approval for lung cancer? Does it not look promising? And should we look for something better? Um, And so it's it's an opportunity to work with all these teams who are working on these molecules um, or on these clinical trials and and come together and and think together. Wow, that's exciting. There's so much going on. And that sense of Yeah. Huge learning curve um, and, <laughs> and, a, and a lot, yeah, a lot to take in and to figure out how do you, because you can't do everything, right? So how, how do you prioritize? But uh, it's a company that's definitely made lung cancer a priority. Yeah, um, for and sure. And so that, that's awesome because, um, you know, it, it, it gives us the opportunity to keep pushing the boundaries of care. Yeah, definitely. Do you, do you have a lot of people reporting up to you? And is that kind of a different uh, role for you from, from, your, from where you were at Vanderbilt? Uh, I, I think the biggest difference, I don't have a, a, a lot. I think the difference is at, at Vanderbilt, it was sort of you were managing your team of nurses and um, uh, uh, PAs and uh, data specialists like within our lung cancer team. Here are some of the folks that you're, you're not, some of the folks who report up to you are physicians. So that's a little bit different where you're not necessarily mentoring them, but you're just sort of 
understanding what they're doing and, sure, and they're yeah. reporting on what they're doing. I think the other part is working with so many people with other skill sets, like people who are coming from a background of investment or, or more of that business part. Um, so it, it's, uh, and it's, you know, it's, I've, I always have, I think I'm pretty good at recognizing what I can't do and what I can't do. So I'm pretty upfront with people um, about what are my strengths and what they're not. And so um, it, it's an opportunity to learn from these other people as well and, and develop some of those skills, although realize that you're never going to be an expert in everything. For, for sure. Well, the way you've described your transition and, and sort of the motivation from going from academic and clinical work to, you know, working in industry, it all makes perfect sense to me. I mean, it sounds, and it sounds like, an amazing opportunity for you to bring your skills to, you know, to, to a new challenge. And, you know, I do some work with, uh, with metadata um, and I'm, I'm on what they call the patient design team. You know, we, we, we work with the software uh, engineers and trying to bring the voice of the patient to clinical trial experience. And I, I had one workshop where we had some sponsors, some industry uh, teams, you know, on a workshop with us. And I thought that interaction between the patients and the pharma people was so cool because we could learn from each other, right? I think I think there's just this assumption that well, pharma can learn from from the patient, but I think the patients can learn from the pharma too because all the stuff that you, some of the stuff that you just talked about, like the investment and the business and the ROI and all that kind of stuff that that's behind the scenes that a patient doesn't understand necessarily. Sometimes that's good for patients to understand that, you know, I I just feel like being a bridge between patients and industry, because I feel like we're all trying to do the same thing, but we all have challenges that maybe we're not aware of. And so until you can understand each other, you you can't really fully get that, you know, that experience. So I saw patients actually learning from, from people in pharma saying, well, the reason that we do it that way is because X, Y, and Z you know, or, and it happened three levels above me or whatever. So that, so it's just kind of a reality check. And so what's your sense so far in your, in your time with, with AstraZeneca on that, that role of the called the patient voice or patient advocacy um, and, and, and how, how does that inform your work? So, so there's, I think the patient voice is behind so much of what we do. Um, and, you know, in fact, we we're having a meeting earlier today where we, we were discussing how COVID has changed what we're doing and, you know, recognizing the patients want care closer to home and how do you make that happen and what does that mean and, you know, what happens if telehealth stays, but what happens if telehealth goes away and how do you still give patients what you need? So I think the patient voice is always there. Um, there are even panels that we have with patients uh, where they come and, you know, they had one for breast cancer earlier this year um, that I listened to where breast cancer patients were talking about what are the barriers to enrollment on clinical trials, what they're looking for um, on clinical trials. And we've also done something, uh, we did something last year in November with a, with a uh, lung cancer patient advocate, a gentleman whose wife had passed away from lung cancer. And he was sort of telling his story and it was around the importance of screening. And, you know, if you feel like something's wrong, pushing your doctors to, to, get that test done so you can get that CT scan and and get that diagnosis. Um, And so I I think the patient voice is really there behind everything we do um, because everything that we're doing is is for the patients and, and to, you know, to, to help the patients and to, to, to drive the science forward. Yeah. And that's really great to hear. And you mentioned the screening and I know you talked about that a little bit earlier with the lung ambition 
um, project. It is amazing that so few people um, percentage-wise are actually getting, even loans are currently eligible because there's a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of advocates, you know, who, you know, who wish that the, there was expanded screening. So, or, you know, awareness with, with primary care physicians and stuff about, you know, someone who might not classically fit that is, you know, the, the model of being 55 years old and X number of packs a day or whatever, someone who never smoked like me, I was 34 years old and I'd never smoked and I got pneumonia twice. And so, you know, like my doctor didn't think anything of it until a radiologist noticed that the, that the infection was in the exact same spot both times. And that's led me to get a CAT scan, but otherwise I wouldn't have had a CAT scan and I wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been detected. So what a shame that that is. And I, 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 I would love to be, you know, more involved with, you know, spreading the word about, about the importance of screening. So um, I love that. I, you know, I, I love that project. So the white ribbon project, have you heard about the white ribbon project a little bit uh, about what's going on in the lung cancer community? Yeah. I, well, I've, I only know about it from you. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's incredible. And, you know, I think the more white ribbons that we see on people's doors, um, yes. is, is, yes. you know, I, I think, I, I think it's incredible because, you know, hopefully it becomes like breast cancer where there's millions of ribbons on people's doors, not only of survivors, but people who say, I helped a survivor. I told them to go get their CT scan. I, drove them to their appointments. I, I think, I think it's an incredible initiative. Yeah. It's, it touched, you hit on, on a lot of the, uh, the important components and, you know, you talked about screening earlier, but what, what brought me to, and you can certainly see my ribbon in the background. I have, I, I actually, I have one in my car that I carry everywhere and I'll tell you something. Um, so the idea that the role that I'm playing is helping, you know, shine a light on uh, industry, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies and other you know, screening companies that are involved with lung cancer. So I, I have a photo. I showed a photo of me inside, uh, outside of the, the AstraZeneca office out in Waltham um, uh, a couple months ago. I, I just, I said, I'm just going to go out there and I hold up my white ribbon standing outside AstraZeneca and did a shout out on, on social media. But the story of the white ribbon, it, it, it's really about the story because it started with a, 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 a woman in Colorado who had stage three lung cancer who Heidi Onda and, and had that frustration of being a non-smoker, healthy person who got lung cancer and did want to put something on her front door, you know, to let the world know, at least her neighbors to start with. And her husband made her a white ribbon out of wood. He, he's, he's a, he's a amateur woodworker and he has, he has his new hobby and he said, I'll go build one. And, and when I heard the story about how he literally got, he went to Home Depot and got some plywood and he cooked traced it out and cut it and sanded it and painted it and, and put the words lung cancer awareness on it and gave it to his wife. And when he handed it to his wife, he, he, he talks about the love, just the felt, the empowerment that he felt by helping his wife as a caregiver. And then how she felt empowered to put it on the front door and say, I have lung cancer. There's no shame in having lung cancer. And she, she, she started um, sharing it with some people in a support group in Colorado. And everyone started saying, can you get, can Pierre make me one? And so then I heard about it and I said, can you, can I get one in Boston? And they're everywhere now. They're, they're actually Canada. They're in eight provinces and one's on the way to the Northwest Territories in Canada. So uh, I thought you'd be happy to hear that, but it That's really awesome. is. It's, it's a simple mission of raising awareness that anybody with lungs can get lung cancer. We want to change the public perception. That's really, it's not branded. It's, it's inclusive, whether you're 
early stage, late stage, you're a caregiver, you're a clinician, you're a researcher, you're a cancer center. Um, I had Dr. Caligiuri uh, from Hit City of Hope on my show last week, and, and they've really embraced the white ribbon. And so the idea is to, is to take action with it. Go see your cancer center, get a photo with your oncologist or the social worker or the infusion nurse, um, with your friends, your neighbors. Uh, researchers now are, are sending ribbons and they're, they're putting them on display in their office and we're on Zoom calls, they, it's in the background. And so I think we definitely need to get you a white ribbon. Uh, that that will be awesome. And I, I will take it to the AstraZeneca office when I visit there in uh, Gaithersburg. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, no, it, it's really important that, you know, when we get people you know, like you and, you know, Sarah Wagwall and Michael Calaturi and the people at the University of Kansas and uh, Christine Lovely at Vanderbilt um, has a white ribbon. Uh, Dr. Stiles, I'm sending him a ribbon to Brennan Stiles in New York, the thoracic surgeon. So, um, it's it, it it does touch on the things that that you know that you talked about, but it means a lot to us as patients when researchers get involved and and having people like you you know understand the power of what we're doing because we're really just trying to change that perception that there's no shame smoker non-smoker doesn't matter there's no shame in having lung cancer and so we're kind of patterning ourselves after the the years of work that people the advocates in the breast cancer community did or in the HIV community years ago. So um, so I, I wanna um, finish up by, I, I, always, I, I always ask my guests, you know, before I let you go, you know, like tell something that you're passionate about or something that people might not know about you. And I'm gonna ask you, I actually read something. So I'm gonna ask you, cause I, you, you were passionate about it, is that when you're in high school and college, you took up, you took tap and modern dancing and you, st and you still love to dance. And so I'd like you to bring us fast forward to today and tell us, you know, are you still attending classes or are you still dancing? So I am, I am still <laughs> dancing. Uh, I have not attended classes during COVID, but before, um, you know, I think Zumba was one of my outlets and, and uh, sometimes tap classes um, in uh, in high school. I got my teachers. I actually started dancing when I was, I think I was six or seven. Um, and so it's, it's still an outlet for me. It, it's an outlet just to feel free. Um, I definitely can't sing to go along with the dancing. So I stick to <laughs> loud music and fun. Um, and sometimes it even manages to get my uh, boys who are uh, approaching, who are one's a teenager, the other one's just getting that attitude um, to, oh to come and smile and kind of spend a little bit of time with me. Yes, I, I've been through that. And I see your dog stretching in the background and I, I don't think... Um, she's too concerned. Here, she's too concerned about about what's going on. Um, he does bark a lot when we're dancing. He he <laughs> runs around and wants to know what's going on. I think he's oh, telling us to sit down. Oh, that's awesome. Well, my wife is like you. You sound like, in many ways you do things that my wife loves to do because she's like kind of kind of wacky and set in that way and getting the kids to dance with her and stuff. And and then they hit that age that you're talking about and it's like okay. Maybe not so cool anymore to be, you know, to be dancing with my mom, but, but it'll get better after the, after those teenage years, it'll get better. So. Oh, I'm going to count on that. <laughs> well, anyway, um, Lyra, thank you so much. It was so, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I, I do appreciate it. And I, I love hearing your journey from South Africa to where you are today. And, and I'm so super excited about your, your, your next chapter with AstraZeneca, because I, I think they're lucky to have you. Um, and I know that you feel great about being there. So much success, you know, in the future, we'll be watching, but thanks again for being on the show. And thank you for everything that you're doing for lung cancer awareness. 
Thank you.